0: There's not nearly enough begging going on from these children. Allison will give them cookies, they'll be sugared up, and they'll beg more when they come back. Well, this week we have our second in a series we are calling We Are Covenant. And uh, it is not a coincidence that we have a new member lunch at the end of the month, and yet for the whole month we're going to be talking about these kind of things that make us who we are. These biblically rooted values that ultimately are who makes us who we are. Anybody can put a mission statement on the wall. It takes another thing to live it out. Anybody can say we're going to live out our mission statement, but what really makes us who we are is how we go about living our lives. What are those things that we do as we go about carrying out our mission? That's what will ultimately define us. And so over the next several weeks, and including last week, if you were curious about what is this covenant church all about, or what is this Jesus thing all about, our hope is that this is a pretty good representation of what you will find here and what we believe the Christ life is all about. So my question, I guess, this morning is, have you ever been to a surprise party? Has anybody ever been to a surprise party? Probably fewer people have never been to a surprise party. Everybody mostly has been to some sort of surprise party. Um, Everybody loves a party. Here's a little bit of uh, advice for you. Not every introvert loves surprises, okay? So as a card-carrying introvert, my wife found out after her second attempt at trying to surprise me that it's not a good idea to throw a surprise party for someone who doesn't like surprise parties. And it may be a control thing, and so I have some therapy to go through over that. But Simply walking into a room full of people um, who you didn't know were going to be there expecting you is a wildly overwhelming experience. Um, and yet, there's something really beautiful about a surprise party. And I don't know if you've ever seen it from this lens, but it, to have one person walking in to a, a roar of applause and a like radical welcome, if you just kind of picture that in your mind, that overwhelming sense of welcome is, is pretty cool. And even as somebody who doesn't love... Um, being the subject of a surprise party, I actually kind of enjoy being at the surprise party, although I'm anxious for the person walking in, and I'm hiding in the corner, and I never want to be seen. I actually really like it because it's so cool to see the look on someone's face when they're radically welcomed into a room of other people who have just been waiting to see them there. It's a really cool picture. I think it's, a, it's sort of a magical thing, to be honest. And what uh, that does for us, that hopefully is a picture that sort of sets the table for what we're talking about today, which is, uh, well, last week we said we are missional. That's one of the things that we are here at Covenant. Today, we are welcoming. And so let's go to the text, and we're going to read about Jesus, and then we're going to kind of zoom back out and see what this has to do with what it means to be welcoming. Luke chapter 9. It's up here on the screens if you want to read it there. Bible says, on their return, the apostles told him, who's Jesus, all that they had done, and Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them. You can circle that. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we're to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men there. He said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Must be wondering what is about to happen. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and he said a blessing over them. And then... He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied, and what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now go back to where I said we have to circle that. Jesus withdrew with his disciples, with the apostles, to a place called Bethsaida, and when the crowds learned of it, they followed him, and the scripture says he welcomed them. So I'm not going to let this passage stand on its own, because no passage in the Bible kind of stands on its own. There's a lot around it, and so what I want to do is walk through the weeks and, and the days leading up to this moment, where Jesus has withdrawn away on his own, and yet the crowds press in anyway. Listen to the days and weeks leading up to this, this moment, this totaling of six chapters of the New Testament. I go back to Luke chapter 4, and what we find there is Jesus is rejected by an angry mob. They chase him to the edge of a cliff, and he only sneaks away because the Scripture says it was not yet his time to die. He then goes and heals a man with an unclean spirit, and after that he goes to Simon's mother-in-law and he heals her, and he heals many more and begins rebuking demons. And then we turn the page, and it's Luke chapter 5, and it says there he's calling his disciples. And after he calls these disciples, he then cleanses a leper. He's engaging the unclean, those that no one else in his community would have touched. He then heals a paralytic, and he eats with a tax collector who was the enemy of all people. We turn the page to Luke chapter 6, and we see that he's healing a man with a withered hand. And then we pick it up in verse 17, and it says, He, Jesus, came down with them and stood on a level place, and a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, they, who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. They press in. This great multitude seeks to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all." Luke chapter 7, we turn the page and we see that he he heals a centurion's servant. The centurions are the guards, the Roman guards, the oppressor. He heals the centurion's servant. Then he raises a widow's son and he forgives a sinful woman. Luke chapter 8, we turn the page. It turns out Jesus is bringing women along in his crew, which is not exactly a popular thing in that culture. And Jesus does not really care what's popular. He then starts telling these beautiful parables, these incredible stories that start to open up truth for people. And we go, maybe it's calming down now. And Jesus is just going to start teaching, no, it's not true. So now he's on a boat and the storm arises and the disciples say, we're going to be drowned. Jesus, what are you going to do? And with a word, he stills the wind and the waves. And they go, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? He turns around as they get back on shore and he heals the man with the demons. You'll remember legion, the demons, and as the demons were leaving the man, they inhabited the pigs and the pigs ran into the water and were drowned. If that weren't enough, he then heals the bleeding woman who was ceremoniously unclean. He turns around and heals and raises Jairus' daughter, who was a Jewish leader, the people who would later crucify him. We turn the page to Luke chapter 9 and what we see is Jesus is healing crowds of people and then he withdraws. He withdraws which I have to believe, and I'm projecting onto Jesus a little bit, but I have to believe at this point, maybe he's a little bit weary of the people. And so he withdraws from the people, and yet the scripture says they follow. And what is Jesus's response? He welcomed them, it says. More than he welcomed them, he then said, we will now feed them. And what we learn as we go through this whole kind of this whole uh, movement in Scripture is we learn that where life exists, people gather. Where need exists, Jesus leans in to the welcome, to the unclean and the enemies and the oppressors and those who would eventually kill him. Jesus welcomes them and serves them. And the question we have to ask ourselves is: Who would you be surprised to see and hear this morning? Mm-hmm. Who in our culture are the unclean or the enemies or the oppressors or those who might look at us and go, "Ugh, those Christians." And do we long to see them here? And more than that, do we long to see them served? See, Jesus' ministry seems to say to those around him, come as you are, but don't leave as you came. Come as you are, but don't leave as you came. Over and over, Jesus is engaging with a population that is in need of him and in need of healing. And he says, come as you are, but don't leave as you came. So when he goes and he visits with the unclean woman, he he talks to her about her sin, and when he goes to the tax collector's house, he says, stop with the injustice. Everyone he meets and he's giving out healing, there's also a certain expectation that as Jesus comes into our lives and transforms our lives, the invitation is come as you are. You come just like you are, right where you are, however you are. And then when you meet Christ, the challenge is leveled out. Now go, but don't leave as you came. We say it around here, it's okay not to be okay, just don't stay there. Where true life exists, people gather. Where true life exists, people gather. One of our elders, Terrence, frequently says, life attracts life. In these past uh, couple years, as people keep gathering here, as we have kind of growing as a church body, sometimes we'll go, I wonder why, or I wonder what happened, or I wonder, and Terrence will just go, guys, life attracts life. It's a line from The Alchemist. It's beautiful. Life attracts life. But people are just attracted to life. Jesus is this prime example where he ministers, the crowd shows up. Where needs are met, life flourishes. People gather. It's a universal concept. People flock to cities around the world because that's where life exists. All over the world, people flock to the major cities. They flock to commercial centers. They want to go where opportunity abounds and where life exists. When you hear of somebody who wants to live out their dream or chase the stars or build a big business, they don't move out to the farm, unless their business or dream is a farm, in which case, I hadn't thought of that. New York City to this day is 37% foreign-born. It doesn't make the city better. It makes the city the magnet for those who are trying to make a better life. Life attracts life. People are attracted to people who are living real life. We see this at Covenant. There is life around here. When I ask people who are relatively new to our community, I ask them, what brought you here? The answer is always some form of, while I heard, blank. And it usually is, I heard that there was life here. I heard that there was some movement happening. I heard that there was a mission worth being a part of. I heard that there was was this thing that I just needed to see and taste and be a part of. And then people come and sometimes they don't know why. They go, I don't know why I'm still here. But it's this thing that I can't quite articulate that there's life here. And I want to be where life is. I want my spouse to come to see what life is. I want my kids to know what life is. I want to be where life is happening. Where there's a mission worth chasing, where there's a movement worth being a part of life attracts life. And so people check it out. And then people join the mission. And what happens is when they go and they live out the mission, it creates more life. And we get into this this kind of beautiful cycle where life not only attracts life, but life creates life. And so life being lived out, ministers do another pocket of people, and those pocket of people go, what is this life they're doing? And then another pocket of people goes out, and it's a growing cycle of beauty, The more ministry that happens, naturally, the more people that are intrigued by what this Jesus thing is all about. Because where true life exists, people gather. What we see in Jesus is he receives people with uncommon and sacrificial ministry. Uncommon and sacrificial ministry. So the question we have to ask ourselves is if Jesus does it that way, and we say we follow Jesus, how do we respond? What does our ministry look like to those outside of this place? What does our ministry look like to the oppressed and those suffering injustice, to those who our society would call unclean? What does our ministry look like to them? And if we listen to Jesus, our ministry should be uncommon and sacrificial. How do we receive the crowd, the guest, the seeker, the curious, the skeptic? At the start of chapter 9, Jesus withdrew. This week, uh, Monday, I went to bed at 830 I'm not that old yet, or that young still. 8.30 is not the normal bedtime for someone in his late 30s. I was tired. It's been a busy ministry season, a great ministry season. I'll probably go to bed at 8.30 tonight. It's been a busy weekend. And here's the thing, even though it's been a great ministry season for us, I didn't raise anyone from the dead this week. And yet I'm withdrawing at 8.30, And I look at the life of Jesus. I don't know what time he went to bed, but as the crowds come, he engages and leans in. In a great ministry season, people press in. Jesus could have sent them away. He would have been perfectly justified, and none of us would have read any ill motive if he said, I just need a break. Give me time to recharge. But the scripture said, when people saw true life happening, they gathered around Jesus and he welcomed them. So why are we a welcoming church? Why am I always pushing us to be more welcoming, to find new ways to greet people well, to find new ways to engage the outside? Why have we given away uh, 50-plus books this year called Becoming a Welcoming Church? There's a whole stack. If you want one, we'll give you one today. Our staff has read it. Our elders have read it. We've given it away to leaders and volunteers. What does it look like to become a more welcoming church, to have simple, practical ways to take the outsider and help them feel like an insider? Why do we have a dance I said of about 100 dads who show up, maybe 25% are covenant dads. It seems sort of irrational for us to pour all these hundreds of volunteer hours. And if you count them, the dozens of people that participated in this event leading from the very creation of it months ago as the teams are starting to get built and volunteer hours are being poured in all the way to this week where a couple dozen people are working on decoration and then people are serving at the dance itself and people are tearing down afterwards and hundreds of hours of your hours that could have been used for anything else. Why would we have a dance for 25% of the attenders are ours and 75% aren't? Because that's what we are required to do as followers of Jesus, is figure out a way to welcome the outsider as insider. So when a brother of ours who's a Muslim comes in and he brings his son, we don't say, I'm sorry, sir, this is a dance for dads and daughters. We say, come on in. And then the next year, when he brings two boys, we go, Awesome. Bring a hundred boys if you want to, because we are desperate for you to know our Jesus. Why do we have greeters at the door? Why do we replace our signage all around the campus so people know where to park? Why did we repave a parking lot? Why do we renovate the foyer? Why are we so others focused? I know where the sanctuary is. Why do we need a sign? We welcome others because Jesus radically welcomed us. Essentially, what we do around here is focused on what Jesus first did for us and then trying to replicate that for those outside. We welcome others because Jesus radically welcomed us. And it isn't about signage. It isn't about parking lots. It isn't about greeters. There are all kinds of churches that have beautiful signs and a really nice parking lot, and they are dead, rotting carcasses on the inside because they don't have a mission worth chasing and the life of Jesus coursing within their veins. This is about so much more than that. There are places that are beautiful on the outside that have no life and no ministry and no hope happening on the inside. This is about us welcoming people here that we might go out and find more. This is the shepherd who leaves the 99 to chase the one. And each and every one of us have someone on our heart that we know is the one in our neighborhood, in our school, in our office place. And we go, that's the one. Muhammad, bring your son. You're the one. Bring two boys, bring 10. We don't care. We're going to keep chasing you. We'll leave the 99 at the risk of neglecting them that you might know faith. We will be a welcoming church because we long to live out the Christ life to be ambassadors of light in a world overcome by darkness because we exist to know Jesus and make him known so our lives will be consumed with new and better ways to do it, to see people made whole in their hour of need. Is it tiring? Yes, at times it is. You ever have people in the church who ask, what about me? Yeah. Are we we so focused on guests? I've heard this question. Are we so focused on guests that we've forgotten each other? hope not but if we're asking that question i think we're right around the sweet spot of doing this thing right where we're so focused on guests that we almost forget about ourselves and as tim keller calls it the art of self-forgetfulness is really the true beauty of the christ life is when we stop thinking so much about ourselves and we start using our lives to think about others and that's where the beauty of the christian life comes in it's the art of self-forgetfulness it isn't about me If there's just one dad who finds Jesus as a result of hundreds of volunteer hours of the sweat and the tears and the sacrifice of last night, is that worth it? I think so. If there's one family lost in darkness that comes to light, if there's one little girl who grows up and because of what was done for her when she was here, that 15, 20, 30 years from now, she comes to Christ and she goes, I never forgot what that church did for us and it never made sense to me. But I walked in and I heard the gospel and as a result, my life has been changed. If that, is that worth it? Yes. That's why we do what we do. Jesus didn't welcome people in his exhaustion or to the point of exhaustion. Jesus welcomed people at the cost of his life. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet enemies, Jesus died for us. He gave our life to save ours. Last week, we said, as the Father sent me, Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Jesus said, I've been given a mission, and as I'm leaving this earth, I'm giving you the mission. You do what I did. Our outward push as a body of believers isn't about growing a church, it's about becoming more like Jesus. It's about each and every one of us leaning into this Christ life that we've been invited to, and as we've been sent by Jesus to go and make disciples to go and see people set free, our job is to think of new and better ways to do it. Luke 15, if you skip ahead a few chapters, you would see it says there's more joy in heaven over one who repents that there's joy in heaven, that the angels have a party when someone comes to faith. That there's a surprise party in heaven when someone comes to faith in Christ. That picture of one walking in that doesn't know what they're in for, and they walk into the room and everyone else is standing, cheering, welcoming. That's why we do this we do this so that someone might experience that feeling of walking into the surprise party of heaven into faith that is real, that is life-changing and life-transforming. That's why we exist. That's why we're welcoming. Being welcoming is about giving our lives to see others set free. Being welcoming is about being expected to see others show up to the party so unaware of the beauty of this life. Being welcoming is about seeing a city with compassion even when it doesn't see us the same way. In 2019 the crowds are still hungry, I will tell you. Just not for bread and fish. The crowds in 2019 are hungry for something entirely different. They're hungry for truth. In a culture of materialism and consumerism and meatism where everything is about self, people are desperate for truth and we have it. And so we scrape together a meal for them. We say, "Come, you're welcome." And in being welcoming like Jesus, we say that all are welcome to eat and drink at his table of grace and goodness and mercy and salvation. All are welcome. Our job is not to save them, but to serve at the table of grace and say, you're welcome to eat from this too. And the beauty of this is when we pour ourselves out for others with true selflessness, even in our moments of exhaustion, we will find that there is always extra in the basket. You look at when Jesus feeds. Here's one of the tiny lessons of when Jesus feeds the multitudes. There's always something left in the basket which means you cannot pour out more than Jesus will refill. There's always something left in the basket. And the other thing is this, the radical Christian life is always more powerful than the most persuasive apologetic argument. We're in an academic town. And we think if we just learn a little more and study a little more and do another this and another that, and if I read this thing and I learn that thing and I maybe get my ducks in a row, then maybe I'm qualified to talk to somebody about this stuff. And I would challenge you to lay your most three compelling points to becoming a Christian down in front of an atheist and then lay your life down in front of an atheist and see which one is more compelling. People are desperate for truth and nothing speaks louder than a life laid down for others. The centurion guarding Christ as he hung on the cross and hung his head to die. The centurion who was the guard of the oppressor who put him on the cross. When Jesus breathes his last, the centurion goes, surely that was the son of God. He didn't get a sermon. He didn't get a lecture. He didn't get three compelling points as to why he should turn. He saw Jesus live his life and give his life. And he said, that was the son of God. We long to be a church that people hear of and are compelled to experience, not because we care if the seats are full, but because life attracts life and Jesus is worth fighting for. We long to be a church that people experience and recognize the presence of God in our actions. We are a people changed by grace and transformed by the Holy Spirit and our lives outside of here will show that. Like a spring, it should just bubble out of us. And you'll see it no matter the station of life that the grad student with no money and the retiree that's got billions in the bank We live the exact same life and there's no difference in the way we serve. There's no difference in the way we love. There's no difference in the way that we interact with our city. And you sense it in subtle ways around here. It's this big vision. We are welcoming. And we've done an incredible job of it. That people can come in here on their very first Sunday and go, you know what? I could see myself calling this place home. That's the goal. And when we go in our community groups and someone new comes in our community group that's never been in your house before and they come in and they go, you know, I could see myself coming back to this group. These people seem all right. That's the goal. And when your neighbor comes over and it's not the right time and they're knocking on the door and you go, geez, not right now, my neighbor. When you open the door and you got a smile on your face and you go, no, it's about you, not me, then that's the goal. We become a welcoming people that desires nothing less than to reach those around us. And it's big to small. It's the big vision evidenced in small ways. If you come early on a Sunday morning, you'll see that all the best parking spots in those lots over there are still available. the leaders who come early typically park further away. Why? Is it because they love the Northwest Ohio winter and they want to take a little bit longer walk at 7 a.m.? That's not it. It's because people are intent on making sure that a guest gets a better spot, even if it's one spot closer because they parked at the back. That's what that's about. Where we sit matters. There was a time when we had one service and we did not have any extra chairs and we had to say, please move forward because the guest, the last thing a guest wants to do is walk in and sit in the front row. If you look around right now, the last thing a member wants to do is sit in the front row. (laughs) The splash zone, they call it at SeaWorld. If you're old enough to remember Gallagher, we'll give you a tarp and you can hold it up when I really get going. (laughs) I have special love for our front row families. Spencers, Mizieskis, Mitovs, Greens, Schumachers, and yes, Burkholders. The people who regularly find themselves in the front row in the worst seat in the house. Why is that a win? Why is it welcoming to sit in the front row? Because the guest doesn't want to sit there. And so if we free up a back row seat, then the back row is open for the guests to sneak in and be anonymous and go, I wonder what this place is all about. And if we give them that opportunity to experience the life that is here, my guess is they're going to go, huh, maybe, maybe I'll look into this Jesus thing. When I interviewed here in May of 2016, I remember coming into this church for the very first time on a Sunday morning, and I didn't know any of you. I didn't know anything about the place, but I did know I was supposed to find a seat and no one told me where to sit. So my very first Sunday in May of 2016, I went and I sat in the very furthest chair in the first row up by the wall, because at that time it was the furthest chair from the door. And I thought that's the furthest chair for a guest to get through, and it's the worst seat in the house. It's the worst view of the stage. It's the worst sound you can possibly get. That's my seat. That wasn't done because I'm some sort of righteous genius. That was done because I've been trained over years that my job as a member of a place is to go and be in the worst spot so that the new person might get a better one. And so to this day, my family sits in the front row and my kids don't know any better. They don't know that it sounds way better in the eighth row right there. We sit there because it's the worst seat in the house. It's the last one the guest wants to walk to because they got to walk through every past person to get there. And if they feel less exposed and they're that much more open to Jesus, then I call it a win. And it's silly. That's not in the Bible, sit in the best seat, sit in the worst seat. That's not in here. That's us taking what Jesus did and saying he welcomed them. And we ask the question in tiny little practical ways in our church, in our homes, in our lives, how am I more welcoming to you? So I renovated the building so when someone walks in, they don't come into a series of hallways and funhouse mirrors. That is, that's what it felt like when I first came in. I was like, where is everything? Where is everything? There are no signs. I don't know if they have restrooms here. What do the people do when they have to go? I don't know. You just wander the halls and you keep peeking in rooms and eventually you find it. And what I was told was everybody knows where the restroom is. I said, yes, everybody who's been here for 30 years knows where the restroom is, but I don't know. And Greg designs beautiful signage and we get them, the elders approved to get it paid for. And so now we have signs on the walls and we have signs in the parking lot that tells people, here's the entrance you can expect to find life. And so the guest comes into a renovated foyer with really clear signage, and their heart rate's just a little bit lower. Because nobody really feels comfortable when they feel anxiety. And so we say, how do we lower your anxiety so you might be comfortable here? So when we give you the gospel, you might be open to it instead of wondering how you get back out to your car that you parked and you're not sure where you parked. Is my car still there? That's not welcoming. None of this is about getting more people into the church. It's about welcoming more people into the kingdom of God. Our job is to be ambassadors of the kingdom. It's about seeing to the needs of the hurting and those who are in need of healing and providing those things in Jesus' name. So we say, come as you are, but don't leave as you came. We say, it's okay not to be okay, but just don't stay there. Jesus welcomed, he saved, and then he challenged. And we are a people of challenge. Jesus welcomed, and then he challenged. He said, turn from your sins, stop with your injustice, give up your life, take up your cross, follow me. Jesus is a high-challenge Savior, and we are a high-challenge church. Take up your cross and follow me. Being welcoming has the highest cost for the host. You ever host a dinner party? When you host the dinner party, you clean before they show, you cook before they show, You serve when they show, you clean after they leave, and then you sleep and wonder if anyone had a good time because you didn't experience it. That's what it means to host a dinner party. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ, is to host. We've been invited to the table of grace, and now we are hosts of the table of grace. We get to invite others, and when they show up, we serve with our whole lives. We sacrifice with everything we have, and we understand that there is no higher cost than the one who is the host, and you and I don't even experience a glimmer of what the cost was for Christ, the ultimate host for you and I, that he came and he said, I'm going to lay everything down for you. My life is not for me, it's for you, it's to be lived as a ransom for many, and we are the reason that he came. And so for those who are outside of the faith, for those who are lost in hopelessness, for those who are outside of these walls and just wishing they had an ounce of meaning in their life, our job is to give up our lives as a ransom for them, whatever that looks like in 2019. And so it starts small. We give up a parking spot or our favorite seat. Eventually, we give up our preference for how church is done or how many services or where we get to go. Jesus invites us to do more than giving up these parking spots or preferences, but to give up our lives. And we will be a church that lives that out. We already are, but we're going to keep doing it more and more and more because life attracts life. And we live out the party of life that Jesus has invited us into. We welcome others into a cheering room of people that have experienced the beauty of grace and salvation. And as they come into those doors, while we will not give a standing ovation to every new guest who comes in, I want them to experience that to know what it means to be welcomed into a room where there is something greater than they ever expected. And if we can be that place, the kind of place where life exists and where life attracts lives, then we will invite all and we will welcome all into this incredible life in Jesus together. We are covenant church. We are welcoming. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your welcome of us is humbling. And humbling is not a big enough word for what you've done for us. In our hour of need, in our moment as your enemy, as those who put you on the cross through our sin, that you still chose to welcome us into your presence. You chose to give up everything that we might know you. Lord, I pray for the hearts in this room, for each and every one of us that call this place our home. Lord, may we lean into Jesus and we look at his life and see a blueprint for our own. May we understand that this is not a salvation we get so that we might rest easy until we enter into your presence, but Father, that we have already entered into your presence and the Holy Spirit is with us that we might impact a culture with your saving love. Father, I pray that you would inspire our hearts, that you would challenge us where we need it, that you would convict us of those places where the idea of living for someone other than self is still hard. Because, Lord, it's still hard. Father, move us closer today. One step closer to what you have for us, one step closer to becoming welcoming as you welcomed us, so that in our homes, the places we work or go to school, the places that we have influence on anyone. Lord, may the life you've given us bubble up and spill out. May we be a people that are so deeply welcoming with the life you've given us that others cannot help but check it out for themselves. Lord, thank you for your son, for the beauty of his life, and what that means for who we are. We love you.